Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambudasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambudasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambudasa my friends today i'm going to talk about bringing balance in our life so i'm going to talk about equanimity you may ask where where is the equanimity in the central teaching of the buddha the noble eightfold path Actually, I've found out it's all over. <laughs> it's all over in each of the Noble Eightfold Path. You can find it if you look closely. But of course, the Buddha mentioned it in a specific way. In Brahma Viharas, we have equanimity. It's called Brahma Vihara Upeka. So there are so many kinds of uh, equanimity actually found in a post-canonical literature. That's a literature that evolved uh, after the Buddha passed away. Many commentaries and all that. Visuddhimagga is one of them that mentioned 10 kinds of equanimity, upekka. I could give 10 talks about upekka, but that will test your equanimity. What I'm just going to do is to pick out something that's relevant for you. And this is how it goes. The reason why I don't want to give all the 10 talks in one, I don't want you to get spiritual indigestion. It's called despepsia. Despepsia, that's indigestion. So I don't want I, I don't want that to happen. So what I'm gonna do is really slowly touch those points that you need to know about equanimity. First, the word upeka is a Pali word that can be divided into two. Upa means justly, impartially, evenly. And ikka there means to see or to view or to look coming from the verb, which is called ikkati in Pali, which means onlooking. So if you put the, those two together, so it's like to view things or beings impartially, neither being attached nor aversive, huh? not having aversion or attachment. It's a balanced state of mind. It's an impartial attitude uh, of the mind, actually. That's by way of definition. I'll just uh, outline those things, just outline them and so that you know where they are in the scheme of Buddha's teaching. So there's uh, Bojanga Upeka, maybe uh, 
I should use even English names. So this is Upeka, uh, the seven factors of enlightenment is one of them. Also, we have Upeka uh, related to uh, jhanas in the third jhana and the fourth jhana. We find also equanimity there. Since I'm not going to talk about them, I just outline them for you. Just mention the name. There's also uh, purity of, of mindfulness due to equanimity. Is that's called parisuddhi upeka? Also, is another kind of upeka. Another one is uh, uh, six-limbed upeka. That's about when you face objects which you wish or unwished for. Uh, then you have. Uh, a cultivation, a state of mind where you don't mind actually whether it's uh, um, uh, this is uh, this an object that I want to see or not. This is more of uh, a high evolved kind of equanimity, which is possessed by people who are enlightened, who have overcome what you call asavas, which is inflows or outflows. These are mental state mind. Um, it's called mental defilements. And uh, there is also what we call uh, upeka as a specific balance, just in a general way of balancing, uh, seeing things in a balanced way. There's also Vedana upeka, that's, uh, uh, that's about feelings, neither pleasant nor unpleasant feelings, another kind of uh, equanimity. There's another one which is actually called uh, virya upeka virya upeka that means uh, balancing the energy not too much energy not too little uh, because too much energy can cause restlessness and too little can cause sleepiness so we have also vipassana upeka that's seeing things rising and passing away when we practice meditation we see things rising and passing away then we have Sankara Upeka, that's a really, really high up there. It's, uh, it's really seeing all condition, phenomena rising and passing away. So I think just know that there are 10 kinds of equanimity. So I'm going to talk about uh, Vipassana Upeka, that's uh, Upeka related to wisdom, and then uh, about the eight world winds. And then uh, about uh, Upeka we see in Brahma Viharas. I think that be, would be enough for today. Now, equanimity. From my personal experience, this kind of equanimity, it is a very challenging one for me. I don't know about you. I grew up in Uganda, so and you, when you grew up in Uganda, you are all the same. <laughs> Nobody really cares <laughs> whether you are tall or short. People don't care. So I went to India to study in 1990. I'm telling you at the airport in Bombay, the people were surrounding me as if I'm falling from, uh, falling from heaven. And then they were touching my hair. And they said, oh, your hair is curled. Is it too hot in Africa? I said, no. The weather's pretty good. Yeah, actually, even actually better weather than India. 
so they were sympathizing with me, that, that, that kind of, this kind of hair. And for me, it was very annoying, actually, because in Uganda, nobody ever touched my hair. <laughs> I mean, first time I said people really, <laughs> like, bees around honey, you know. So I had a, a layover there before I proceeded where I was going to study. So I had the really whole night there. So it was horrible, actually. <laughs> so that's as a lay person. After staying five years in India, uh, of course, I, that's where I stumbled over the Dharma and practiced the Dharma. And uh, I, I developed a lot of patience, actually, in that country. There's no kind of patience that I can learn in a tipitaka, in a book, than the kind of patience I developed in India. <laughs> I mean, every day is a dove patience. <laughs> You ask, when is the bus coming? Coming. When the bus coming? Coming. <laughs> Please, can you tell me the bus when is coming? Oh, yeah. They just get fed up of you. And then it's so frustrating. Nobody tells you when the bus is coming. It can take forever. <laughs> I mean, those who have been to India, you can tell exactly what I mean. I mean, I, I grew up in Uganda, so, so same standard of living, but at least uh, you can know pretty much when the bus is coming. <laughs> now, I lived in India, India, in South America, and came to the United States. I became a monk, finally. I stayed in a monastery for almost uh, eight years in West Virginia, protected. Of course, I used to travel a little bit until after September 11th. Was, uh, then things changed the way how to travel here in the United States, as you know. Then as a monk, that's when my traveling picked up, actually, in, uh, when, like, like 2005, actually, I had an incredible schedule of traveling around, teaching and all that. And then I went to the airport. One time I was going to teach at the Rock, Spirit Rock. We call it the Rock. <laughs> I was going to teach there, and then um, it was a POC retreat, and then uh, for some reason I got lost, and uh, I came to the airport. I, I ran out of time. I was about to miss the flights, and uh, then I went to these checkpoints, and then they told me, male assist, you, need, you, you are going to be checked. And then I said, okay, but I, my flight is leaving now. I said, no, 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 we have to check you. You're putting a lot of clothes, you know, kind of bed sheets, actually. <laughs> to them, I think it's bed sheets. It's not robes. So I waited there, and then I can see a version arising because I'm about to miss the flight. I'm, I'm going to be the first person to, uh, to give re uh, the refugees and the fire precept. I'm already programmed to be the, uh, a part of the opening day at, at the Spirit Rock, you know. So uh, finally, the person came to check me. It took ages for that person to come to check me. 
And then as a monk, I said, what am I going to do if I miss the flight? Nobody is there waiting for me. And then this person came finally and started checking me. I was going to say, please, I'm a monk. I cannot carry any weapons. Please. I keep 227 precepts. You are not going to find a knife. I wanted to do that, and I could see the blood pumping. And as a monk, actually, it's very difficult to lose it because you, sometimes you feel that you are going, you're about to lose it. And then you look at the robes and say, oh, you know, I'm a disciple of the Buddha. <laughs> Forget about it. <laughs> actually, it pays to also those people who have those in all these things around. Actually, they're good reminders, you know. If you don't have a robe, you can have that thing around you. The Dalai Lama always gives these little round things. I decided to have equanimity, actually. I remembered that moment to have equanimity. So every time he told me, stretch like this, I said, oh, this is gymnasium. I said, then he said, can I put you, uh, can I uh, really touch you? I said, of course, it's all yours. And then I said, <laughs> and then I said, I said, oh, this is a good massage. <laughs> actually, because I was really feeling furious that I'm going to miss the flight, so I decided to have equanimity. And then he said, okay, please sit down. I said, again, I'm sitting down? And then he started, oh, can I pat your feet? Uh, I really felt that I'm really going to lose it. I said, oh, this is a, uh, what's it called? A reflexology. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> then I, I went to my flight, actually. Really, literally running, actually, to catch my flight. And then I said, oh. I've got me um, meditation in airport. Ever since I have made my meditation in airports about equanimity. So equanimity is actually changing our attitude, not changing the situation. I could not stop the person to check me, but I changed, I shifted my attitude. It's very, very important. Now I'm going to talk about eight worldly winds, eight dhammas. In Pali, we chant them many, many times in Mangala Sutta. Puttasaloka damehi chittaya sanakampati asoka viraja kema eta mangala uttaman. This means a mind unaffected by the eight worldly winds. It is soulless, it's stainless, and it is secure. So this is part of Mangala Sutta, and they say this is the greatest blessing. If you have a mind which is not touched by all these winds that I'm going to tell you, then you are, you are sorrowless and stainless and secure. One could expect that's the mind of an arahant, but we can, some, somebody who's a, who has attained enlightenment, but we can actually try as much as possible to actually uh, practice. Uh, this uh, way so that the mind is not tormented by the winds, uh, the worldly winds. So they are coming in pair like pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. So these are the winds that are blowing all the time. <laughs> So the first pair, uh, I mean, uh, like, let's say, let us take the positive ones, and the pleasure, gain, and praise, and fame, we are always attracted to them. We want them. 
But the other pair, I mean the other side of pain, loss, and blame, and disrepute, we don't like it. We don't like those winds. Just as you cannot contend with the winds outside there, you cannot. <laughs> you lose. <laughs> if you start getting angry at the wind blowing, <laughs> you will lose. <laughs> you have to put on a windbreaker. <laughs> so, the same way these winds are blowing all the time, you have to work with these winds in a very skillful way. Recently, there was a changeover, and we gained new yogis here. And the other yogis in the past, first part, in the part one, they left. For me, it's always a wonderful moment. I remember in 99 when I was doing a three-month here, where the, the, the departing yogis were bowing to us like this, and we bowed to them. For me, it is amazing, really, how you feel with these people who you've not been talking to. Really, you feel that you have lost them. <laughs> really. And then new one come and you gain them. So actually, you really actually have to balance your mind. You have to balance your mind so that it's not taking, taken. I mean, it's not swayed by the coming and going. It's very, very important. Pain is also very common in meditation. You can't stop pain from arising, and you cannot extend pleasure. It's just wind that arising from time to time. Praise and blame is happening all the time also. Maybe not here in meditation. We are not blaming you. By the way, when you come to report in your meditation, uh, I mean, in your interview. So we are not blaming you, actually. <laughs> we are just actually listening, supporting your practice. But sometimes, be careful, because sometimes a teacher might be saying something and say, is it blaming me or not? Uh, so it's very, very important to watch out our tendency to think that people are blaming us. Most people do not know how to work with these winds. They take them personally. And that's a big problem. When you take the, these winds personally, then they affect you. This is uh, something I've experienced actually myself, but also my students at the, at the Uganda Buddhist Center. They have experienced it and they came to me as some, one of them actually is my attendant, called me one time when I was in Uganda recently. He called me and said, Bante, I'm going to leave the temple. I said, why? You see, your cousin has told me that I'm a dog. He said, 
And he was so furious. He said, Bante, I've been working for you for all these years, but I'm going to leave the temper. I'm sorry. How can your cousin call me a dog? Then I said, oh, this blame. This guy has been blamed. So I know how to skillfully uh, respond. I asked him, are you a dog? He said, no, I'm not a dog. I said, why are you getting angry then? <laughs> What's amazing that this, my attendant said, yes, you are right, Bante. I'm not a dog. I told him, a dog sees a dog. <laughs> and a pig sees a pig and all this. So don't worry. I'm the one who brought you to the temple. <laughs> so up to now, the guy is still there. But he was about to leave. And I, if he left, actually, I was going to be in trouble. <laughs> who will give me food, actually, because for us, we have to... And people have to offer us food, you know. My mother, of course, is a nun also, uh, but she's getting a little bit old. So I have a kapia there, actually, who gives me food. But I was terrified that he's going to leave because he's been called a dog. It's amazing. So if somebody blame you next time, you have the power. The power is all yours to choose whether to buy into that or not. Even blame, actually. I mean, uh, praise. In business, there's, they have what you call one-minute praise, praise where that, uh, your employ, employer praise you for having done something. So I think you can take those praises. Uh, but you know that also praise can elevate us, and then we go to the other extreme. Uh, there is a monk in Thailand who gave a good approach to this wind of praise, he used mathematics to overcome this. He said that every time somebody praise, praise you, it's like one number, the one number, and you put a zero. So all the praises you get, you put that zero on the left of one. So any time you put zero before one, it's a small number. It's, that doesn't inflate, inflate the number. But most of the time when people are praising us, they put a zero on the right of one, so you get many zeros from 10 to 100 to 1,000 to a million, and then you get inflated. When you reach, let's say, 1 million, you just need only one blame. And then the whole thing collapses. In the entire world collapses. <laughs> Even when somebody has praised you 1,000 or 1 million times, one day they will say, you know, I don't like your hairdo. <laughs> oh, the entire world will collapse. So it's safer to put zeros before one so that the world doesn't collapse. There the mat mathematics works, at least in the practice here, for the first time. I think uh, out of all these eight winds, I'd like to talk more of pain because I think pain is a, a very dominant wind in retreat setting. I don't know about you, but I think uh, if I remember uh, during my practice at Tatagata Meditation Center in California, I went through a lot of pain. So that uh, is now it's motivating me to really talk more about the wind of pain, how we can use it, uh, we can use equanimity to deal with pain. I think all these instructions that we, give, we have given you actually is about equanimity. It's about equanimity. 
these instructions are not new, but still I'm going to go over them about how to deal with pain. I'm sure you know already. I'm using this as a case study that you can apply it to other winds. Pain. I didn't really understand pain through reading books. I really went through lots of pain, but physical pain mainly. I lifted things at UMass. I, one time I stayed at UMass there in Hammerst. And I kind of had my leg lifting beds and all that. So then when I, I went to become a monk, I had a lot of pain actually from lifting things. And then I sat in a monastery and I was trained by an assistant to Sado Pandita. So you can expect he was tough. He was a tough monk in terms of training. So in Tatagata Meditation Center in San Jose. So when I went there, the first thing he asked me, how long did you sit? I said, 45 minutes. He said, mm, you can't sit one hour? All the people sitting 45 minutes? <laughs> you are training to be a monk and you can't sit for an hour? So I said, wow, how am I going to really do that? So I started extending my seat to one hour. And when I went there, I said, I sat for an hour. I said, mm, you can't sit for an, one hour and 30 minutes? Then I kept on going and sitting and I was going through a lot of pain. I lost equanimity, even uh, <laughs> the equanimity I had learned in India and all this, I lost it. One time when I had to really hit the one, one hour and 30 minutes, pain came and I was sweating. I was really sweating. But I wanted to see how I can sit for one hour and a half. One thing came to my mind, okay, why don't I change your relationship with this pain? So whenever pain came, I would get like, do, do like this. It was in the knee here. I would just say, oh, my friend. Oh, there you come again. It was amazing how I sailed through pain and broke through just by changing relationship. Because every time when pain came, I was reacting. I was, there was some kind of reaction whenever pain came. But changing my relationship... Oh, my friend. Okay, I was saying meta to my, myself. Oh, may I be free from pain. Oh, my. you are my friend. You have come again. Here you come. So I'm telling you, I really related very well with pain. Later on, I learned some insights how to break pain into even different elements. The four elements that we have already studied. You break pain into four elements and it's kaput. <laughs> it just actually changes. You just watch different sensations, hardness, softness, and throbbing, and it just changes. Okay, so the instructions that uh, we have here is when pain comes, recognize it. That's the first thing. Recognize it as pain, 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 pain. And sometimes no when it's absent. When we do that, we are actually practicing equanimity. 
Because we are mindful, we are observing. We are observing. The second instruction is to have a proper attitude. The proper attitude is not reacting, but responding. This is very, very important. This can make a difference between freedom and being in bondage when you have pain. This reaction actually came uh, many years ago when he was, uh, according to neuroscience, when we, we lived in a world with animals, we had to really re develop this kind of reaction. We have to avoid lions. And we have to really reach out for food, and gather, uh, hunting, and all these things. So it's a kind of old reaction that we have through evolution. And when we meditate, we, st we still kind of use the same kind of reaction to watch the stuff that is happening in our experience. So the best way is actually to respond. When you, when you respond, then actually you have equanimity. There is a difference between reaction and responding. A few differences that we are going to track down. One is reaction is more of autopilot. Whenever something happens, you, you change it posture. Like, let's say you have pain, as soon as something comes, you change like that. So it's like kind of automatic. But responding is more voluntarily, right? You really actually take time and say, okay, I'm going to do like this. So that requires equanimity, some kind of equanimity. Reaction is erratic. It's unnatural, you know, it's, but uh, responding is more spontaneous and very natural. And reaction is irrational, and responding is more rational. I think it was uh, Brian talked about survival and living. So really, uh, reaction is more of a survival. <laughs> really, you, you're really actually reacting, and you really have to survive. That's how we used to survive. But responding with equanimity, it, it's more of you live your life. You really, uh, uh, the Pali word is called viharati, dwelling. You dwell. All this practice is about dwelling, actually. So you respond in dwelling, in the world of dwelling. So reaction is actually having four biases. There are four biases in Buddhism. We call the four ways of going wrong. That means whenever you re react, it is greed, there's attachment, that's one of the reaction. Uh, there is aversion, that means you push away things. Attachment, you try to reach out for things, you start to reach. And then ignorance, you try to ignore. You ignore everything. You don't pay attention to pain. You leave it in the background. Uh, you just watch the breath. You don't want to face it. You ignore it. Another one is fear. Those are the four ways of going wrong. Those are four biases. That's part of reaction, but responding is more of uh, approaching the pain with loving kindness. As I said, met at my pain, <laughs> responding with, <laughs> when pain came. It also means applying wisdom and understanding when pain is arising. 
trying to investigate what's this pain and all these things as we are going to say to see very soon and also letting go generosity courage all those are pointing to what we call responding so there's a difference between reaction and responding so whenever we are facing winds this it winds we have to respond and not react so that we can practice equanimity now whenever pain arises and that even applies to other winds we have to really actually carry some kind of investigation uh, using what we call vipassana upeka that means uh, really seeing the impermanence nature of the experience the, the unsatisfactory nature of that experience the impersonal nature of that experience i think these things we have to repeat again and again no wonder buddha spent 45 years teaching one thing and one thing suffering and its end so i don't know how many time we talked about seeing uh, investigating in permanence and unsatisfactory and selfless nature and uh, yet sometimes we don't see it though you've had many times you have heard about this many many times but really it's very difficult sometimes but it's good to hear this again and again if you want to really deal with the winds in a very skillful way you have to know that they're changing have you ever seen winds which are static winds are changing <laughs> so when those winds arises in your experience just observe the change but most of the time it's not like that when we have pain we don't see the change we just want to change our posture and dodge it kind of jab the experience but if we start seeing the change then it's going to be workable it's not one thing not one solitary thing and for me how i overcome pain and i went even to sit for 2 hours that i never expected to do i never expected to sit in meditation for 2 hours actually during my training as a monk because the knee was hurting because as i told you i had injured it but one time one time for some reason i remember the teaching either i was listening to one dhamma talk or there's something that came to me after studying about the four elements that means earth element fire element and uh, and um, wind element and water element and then i say what if i break this pain because it's physical pain what if i break this pain into these four elements and just watch those elements i was so surprised that once i was seeing pressure hardness softness hotness coldness pulling pressure pain just melted like this in front of me i just went for another 30 minutes I mean I think pain was there but I was not really actually reacting to it I was just having this kind of uh uh insight into the true nature of that pain because that's what is going on We just have to change the perception 
those who are here, part one, I mentioned about phantom limb. Uh, all of you know this, how actually they cut the wound. Let's say if somebody had a wound here, they cut the whole hand, or if it's a leg, they cut the whole leg. And then those people, they experience pain even after six months. Ask yourself, why people who have a wound here, maybe those people have been in a war, and the bullet passed here, and they cut the arm, the hand, and then people experience pain. Because pain is mapped in the brain. So, to deal with the pain, you just have to change your attitude in the mind. So, that's what I did actually by breaking pain, physical pain, into four elements. Into the, pro the, the properties of elements, not to be uh, elements, uh, but they are properties. That means the hotness and uh, coldness and then uh, hot, uh, the, the roughness and heaviness. So these are properties of these elements. I changed my perception in the brain, in the mind. And then pain was there, but it was not horrifying. It was not like this kind of ghost sitting in my knee, making me suffer. It was not even my pain. It was just actually breaking apart. And uh, exactly what happens, you can even do this experiment. If you have a clock like this, and you try to put things apart here, you put this apart, you put this apart, the clock will be gone, even when you have the best clock from Switzerland. <laughs> like maybe you have, uh, what's the clock in Switzerland? Oh, oh, what's it called? IWC and those clocks and Lorex. Okay, you have Lorex. It's so expensive. If you ever split it apart, apart and put one there, one part over there, one part over there, you lose the sense of a, a watch or a clock. It's not there anymore. So that's what we do, actually, whether it's emotional pain, whether it's physical pain, try to split it apart. That's actually the instruction we give you is to spread everything apart. We put it there, we put it there. So you lose the sense of solidity or this pain that's in the knee. So this is how we, I dealt with pain. I hope it is going to be helpful for you. But So we do like that. We change it and then uh, we change our attitude and then we also... Split it. We can see its impermanence nature. We can see its unsatisfactory nature. And also we can see its impersonal nature. Pain is actually caused due to, I mean, it's, it comes to, to causes and condition actually. Idovic medicine, Idever, Idovic medicine, those traditional medicine in, Uganda, in India, they know very well that actually disease is due to imbalance of these elements. In fact, more of the physical pain that you experience is more of the imbalance of these four elements. When hotness is, more, is having an upper hand, then you feel like sitting on a hot plate. <laughs> when there's too much hardness, then it's an element overpowering. In Burma, in fact, when I practice in Burma, people don't sit in the cushion you have here, like this. In America, you are very lucky. You are sitting on thrones, actually. <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> you go to Burma, people are just using this small mat, very tiny mat here to meditate. 
So those people, they experience pain. Actually, because when they meditate, they actually tune into these four elements and they can really feel the softness and all that. And then they just keep on sitting, even on a floor, on a floor like this. It's amazing. Okay. That wind of pain, because it has been going on in our life for a long time, we need to depersonalize it. Pain is not I, it's not mine, it's not myself. I say that even in the morning because it's very, very important to remember that, that really pain comes due to causes and conditions. Right? So don't own it. Just be aware of the condition that brought pain. Your body, you have four elements and you sit on four elements. What do you expect when you have a body? What do you expect when you have a body? Pain is going to arise, of course. So, is that bad news? No. It's just how things are. Just change the relationship. And once you change the relationship, it's not I. You, you, you're actually working with this conceit and arrogance. Not mine, that's craving. Not myself, it's wrong views. So, be careful though. Because when I give this instruction, people say, oh, it's not mine. Oh, then who's exper experiencing pain? I'm here. Eh? I came here and the pain is my me. Bante, come on, be real. <laughs> I'm experiencing pain. Actually, we have to understand things on two levels. One is a relative level. Yes, there's no doubt about it. You are sitting there. In a relative sense, you are experiencing pain. But in ultimate level, really, pain is a process. So we want to stay on ultimate level other than being on a relative level and personalize things. I think we should go to another opeka. It's getting out of time. As I told you, only one opeka has taken us this long. I don't know. Okay, let's go to another opeka for the sake of time. So um, there's another kind of upeka, which is called, uh, uh, which we found actually in four Brahma Viharas, uh, metta, there's, there's uh, loving kindness, there's compassion, there's appreciative joy. Then there is what we call equanimity that uh, uh, we find there. So it is a mental quality of the heart and mind which uh, has a, bal a balance uh, as regards to beings, right? So, seeing beings impartially. So, according to ancient commentaries by Venerable Buddha Gosa in the Path of Purification, Visuddhimaga, he gave some ways how to practice actually equanimity towards beings so that you are not attached to them, hmm? so you don't go bananas when you see beings. <laughs> so when other beings comes that you love, you don't get attached to them. So you have a kind of a balanced mind when you see beings, even animals that you love. This is very, very important. So uh, he said like this, if you want to practice upeka, you start with a neutral person, neither friendly nor enemy. So you have to look for a neutral person and practice. 
if you don't find a neutral person, I, I volunteer. All right? I'm here. <laughs> you start with Bante <laughs> and send these thoughts of equanimity. Then you go to a dear person, somebody who's your dearest person, and then unfriendly person and all beings. That's how you practice opeka in that order. Uh, I know you already been given how to the, how to uh, this order of practicing metta, uh, where you start with yourself. But it seems that with this commentary or literature, Buddha Gosa said that you start with a neutral person and then you proceed from neutral person to dear friend to unfriendly person to all beings. And the phrases we are going to use here as we practice this kind of equanimity, again, they are given in uh, commentary, and I'm going to offer this for you, and you can use it if you want. So this is how you sit comfortably and feel at ease, and then you start reflecting along this line, may you accept things as they really are. The question is, here's the question. How things are? Are they goofy? <laughs> How things are? You have to find out. We have to have wise acceptance. I want to qualify the word accept because we are not like, like accepting everything uh, unwisely. <laughs> Otherwise, it's like Buddhism is going to be very passive. Really have wise acceptance. There is a, actually a small quote that I have uh, here. It's a thing from the prayer of, uh, it's called uh, Serenity Prayer. This, it was saying, God, grant me the serenity. But I want to put a Buddhist twist. <laughs> May I have serenity. <laughs> Other than expecting something from up there. But I want to say, May I have the serenity to accept things I can't change. Such as, such as pain, of course. Courage to change the things I can. And wisdom to know the difference. So this, for me, is amazing, actually. This is not Buddha's words, actually. It's from somebody who's a Christian, I think, who I've forgotten even the name. This is a teaching on equanimity, actually. Accepting things as they really are. Not wanting to change them. And actually, wanting to change things that you can't change, actually, that's dukkha in a word. <laughs> whether it's pain, whether you're fellow yogis, whether you're, <laughs> you're in your relationship, if you want to change something, <laughs> you lose. <laughs> we can't even change ourselves. <laughs> How can you expect to change others? That's a question. <laughs> After failing, failing to change ourselves, we move on trying to fix everything, our relationship, everything in the world. We want to change teachers. We want to change our fellow yogis. We want to change the cushions. We want to change everything. We are changing freaks. Every time we are freaks, changing, changing, changing. I want change, a mind state, and today I want meta, I want to change it to compassion. I mean, what's wrong with meta? 
even in where I live in Sri Lanka, people say that they don't want to practice meditation because there's another Buddha coming, which is called Metta Buddha. I said, what's wrong with Gautama Buddha? I mean, the teaching is very clear. He taught for 45 years. I mean, everything you can find there. Actually, I have a greater appreciation of the Buddha. Everything is right there. It's just amazing. I mean, 45 years teaching. I mean, you, this is a, as a monk. I live in a monastery. I study Buddha's teaching. I mean, I haven't finished it. Really, it's a lot there. So people still want to change. We want to, ch- to change the Buddha. <laughs> Wait for the new. <laughs> Good luck. These are a few reflections. Uh, one of, I've given you actually one of them. Uh, may, may, may you accept things as they really are. Another one, you are the owner of your karma. Your joys and sorrow depend upon your karma, not upon my wishes. This looks a little bit cold and indifference, but actually it's not. It's seeing things in reality. But again, on a relative level, we see beings that we cannot help so much. Yes, if, if somebody, let's say, has a terminal disease, what are you going to do, actually, apart from really saying compassion? So the law of karma should not be understood as something that uh, uh, really uh, causing harm because misunderstanding it, it uh, you can misunderstand it and then you you don't uh, you you miss the whole point about the dharma. Of course, uh, somebody will talk about the law of karma, but uh, uh, I just want to tell you that karma is simply evolution. And uh, anything that we do uh, intentionally with good hatred and delusion and its opposites has a potential to bring its fruits. It has a potential to bring the fruits, which is called Kama Vipaka. So we have to understand that. So the teaching of Kama, of course, is a proximity cause for equanimity to arise. Remember that when we reflect on the law of Kama, the equanimity is going to arise. So the, really, the teaching on karma is uh, helping us to be self-reliant and to be patient and self-restrained. But what I want to mention here is that not everything is caused by karma. That's another extreme. Another extreme to think that nothing is caused by karma. So we allow other causes and conditions that are there for things to happen. I'll give you an example. Uh, when the tsunami, uh, there was tsunami in Sri Lanka, it's a Buddhist country, but most people thought that because of love karma that they went through this problem. No. There are other causes. and In Buddhism, we call them niyamas, which is like the order, the way how things are. One of them I'm going to give you like, is Bijaniyama, which is love seeds. When you plant apples, you get apples. That has nothing to do with the karma. Another one is Utuniyama. That's climate uh, changes, tsunami, earthquakes. That have nothing to do with the karma. 
Dharma niyama, that means the, how things changes, impermanence, satisfact unsatisfactoriness, non-safe. This is not uh, about uh, karma. So how things are, even the Buddha said, whether he came to exist, he comes to existence or not, that's how things are. Things are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and uh, no self, of no self. There's chitta niyama, chitta. Chitta niyama means minds, psychic uh, uh, laws, uh, basically the way how you, like you see something, and then uh, eye consciousness arises, then feeling arises. That's a process according to chitta niyama. So, when you, we talk about uh, the law of karma, don't say, oh, you know, what about all the injustice in the world? No, no, no. Actually, we accept that there's something happening in the world, so not everything is caused by karma. Again, I, I don't know whether I've opened a can of worms <laughs> talking about karma because it's the most misunderstood teaching. Then people say, oh, you know, are you justifying injustice because of karma? No, no, no. I'm not justifying anything here. I'm just telling you to understand that certain things are caused by karma, others are not. So that helps us to have equanimity so that we don't go on the other sides. On the ultimate level, we want to have also insight into non-self that will help us to balance our things that ultimately, that really there's no self experiencing these things. There's no self. Somebody will talk about anatta, non-self. This is not the time to talk about it, I think. <laughs> it's another big talk. So you know that actually uh, we, we, when we, we, we kind of reflect on love karma, on relative levels, we recognize these are beings going through this problem and all that, so we cannot change their situation. Somebody who is uh, kind of uh, have a, what you call life sentence, all what you have to do is to send me compassion and love, karma. I mean, uh, and uh, maintain equanimity. Otherwise, there's no amount of tears that can go, can cause somebody to to really come back to life. So at that time, we need the, this kind of teachings. So okay, finally, I want to uh, really go over what are the benefits. Why bother practicing love, karma? What are the benefits? According to Buddha's teaching, we found out benefits in sending loving kindness. But in Visuddhimagga, the, the, the path to, of purification by Venerable Buddha Gosa, mentioned that the same benefits of practice metta can be gained by practicing equanimity. So I'm going to list them real quick. There are 11 benefits. One of them is when you practice equanimity, you sleep very well. Friends, <laughs> all the time I've been teaching, I didn't take this seriously until I, I had the problems with sleeping. And I said, oh, this is very important. Actually, for me, I'm a good sleeper, actually. <laughs> Since I was young, I used to have competition of sleeping, actually. <laughs> In a boarding school, I used to win, actually. I would sleep... <laughs> I would sleep actually from, uh, we are in a boarding school and on the weekend, I mean, we are exhausted. And I would sleep at around uh, 10 and uh, we, we, we say, who's going to really wake up, the last, the last person to wake up? And guess what? I was the last one. I would sleep until 1. <laughs> 
So I grabbed like this, and then one time I had some kind of problems and uh, MRI scan and all these things in slunk, and it, that disrupted my sleeping rhythms. I'm telling you, it's so painful not to have good sleep. So if you want to have good sleep and throw maybe your sleeping pills away, practice equanimity. It's cheap. Just keep at it. <laughs> another one, another benefit. You wake up in comfort. You are not so tired and all this because your mind is fresh. Because sometimes when you have all this anger and attachment, sometimes you don't have equanimity and balanced mind and then you can't sleep. Uh, and then that means you can't sleep. And then when you wake up, you're grumpy. Really? So, it actually, you wake up in comfort. And also, one dreams, not evil dreams, right? You dream Dharma dreams, sweet dreams. So, I call them Dharma dreams, actually. You dream like meditating here. Oh, everything's going very well. You have equanimity, and you're like a vegetable, you know. Every, all yogis who are walking, they don't bother you. New yogis were coming, you don't mind actually. <laughs> so you dream actually everything is just okay. Actually, the first book I read about Buddhism was a Zen teacher actually. Uh, in, he said that it's okay, it's okay, everything it's okay. So every time this thing came in my mind, oh, it's okay, it's okay. You have, I have pain, it's okay. <laughs> so. For a long time, this was my meditation, actually. Yeah, I've forgotten that uh, Zen teacher. It's called Every, Everyday Zen. It was very helpful in 1994. Another benefit, fringe benefits. One is dear to human beings, right? So you, you have friends. You don't hate people. You don't hate your fellow yogis. You don't hate yourself. All beings, all human beings. One is dear to non-human beings, like uh, dogs and bears and all these things. <laughs> black bears, I'm talking about black bears, actually. Just about everything, non-human beings. <laughs> I met a bear, actually, but there's not enough time to talk, to talk about <laughs> Three bears <laughs> in one year. I don't know whether because I was practicing equanimity, <laughs> but for some reason. <laughs> Seventh benefit, uh, actually the sixth benefit, deities, devas, God one, they guard you. So I don't know whether you believe in that, this, but uh, they are devas, which are heavenly beings. But you suspend your judgment if you don't believe in this kind of stuff. Number seven, benefit. Fire, poison, and uh, weapons, they do not affect one. They don't touch you in other words. Are you going to believe in this? <laughs> Fire. <laughs> actually, it's very interesting in commentaries, we have a situation where actually these things don't affect people, but I'm telling you, don't take it too literally. It's figure, figurative speech, actually. 
So the fire of greed, hatred, and delusion, they don't affect you. That's what you should understand. Of course, there are some situations where people actually have not been affected by bullets, but don't take it too literally. It's figurative speech. Another one is your mind gain concentration easily. And the ninth one, the expression of the face is serene, complexion bright. I know you, you like that. No more cosmetics. <laughs> Only dharma cosmetics of equanimity. So, another fringe benefit is uh, one dies unconfused. You die with equanimity. And finally, the, third, the 11th one, if one penetrates no higher, like if you don't reach the final enlightenment, you go to Brahma world. That's called Deva world, where you experience lots of happiness, more than you experience here. Friends, this is about equanimity. Let us sit for a moment or two. Taya sana kampati asoka viraja kema etamangara utaman. A mind unaffected by eight lokadamas, eight worldly winds, is soulless, stainless, and secure. This is the greatest blessings. May you be blessed. May you all practice equanimity until you attain final enlightenment. Thank you very much. I offer this for your reflection.